This morning we are in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 35. Acts chapter 15. Verses 12 through 35. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning from Acts 15. Again, 12 through 35. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is, uh, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has been good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Entitled this message, The Heart of Change. The Heart of Change. When we think of change or even compromise today, 
we often think of it in a negative way. Most people are resistant to change. They're resistant because, to be honest, we like things the way they are. The reason for this is because we are often comfortable with the way things are. Even if the way things are happen to be bad, we're still comfortable with them. And then when change comes, we can hear folks talk about the good old days and people longing for the good old days, kind of reminiscent to how Israel longed for the good old days of slavery to the Egyptians when Moses was leading them out of captivity. The problem, of course, being that those good old days were neither good and they definitely weren't good old days. Additionally, we think that if we compromise or change, that has to be an indication that we're weak. If we compromise, that must mean that we are wishy-washy and that we really have no real conviction in our life. After all, if we need people of conviction that will stand for what they stand for no matter what, even if they are standing for something that is wrong. Isn't that what we want? Someone that will stand no matter what? However, there are several problems with this. First, the person who refuses to change or compromise typically is not a person that's teachable. The reason they are not teachable is because they believe they are always right and they always have the answer. And if we are not teachable, how will we learn from the Lord? Some people are so strong in their conviction of what they believe to be truth, that if you disagree with them in one small area, then they classify you as a heretic. If you then try to help that person see that their response is not a loving response, then they accuse you of compromising the truth. Here's what happens often when we major in the minors. In that I mean that we are so intent on standing for things that are not essential truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, rather than taking a stand on the truths of Scripture. However, our response needs to be, when dealing with non-essentials and godly people that differ from us, our response needs to be that we elevate love over rights. And so like we saw last week, there are times that we reject unity based on clear doctrine, specifically the doctrine of salvation when it's being perverted and teaching contrary to salvation that's found in Scripture by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't have unity if somebody teaches something different than that. However, there are times when we need to change. There are times when we need to compromise. There are times when it's okay to compromise. And in this text this morning, we see this. Remember, the main question before the Jerusalem Council, which is what we are reading about, is whether or not a person must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That's the main question. However, Peter powerfully proclaimed that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in Him. To add works to faith is a perversion of the gospel. And we say that Paul and Barnabas had dissension. We saw that. They had that dissension last week over the teaching that was brought to them from supposedly the Jerusalem church. And we read in verse 12 that Peter's argument was so strong that the crowd was silenced. And then Paul and Barnabas began to talk about how God had moved in the lives of the Gentiles through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it was confirmed through signs and wonders. And they want to make it clear that it was God working amongst the Gentiles. It was God's doing, not man's doing. And Paul and Barnabas finished speaking, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who later writes the epistle of James, then takes the floor. James is the presiding elder of the church of Jerusalem. And when James comes to speak, certainly the Judaizers felt that James would side with them. Surely James is going to be on our side. But instead, he affirms the message of Peter. And then he backs it up with scripture. He also backed up the view of Paul and Barnabas in that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. And then James lays out four things the Gentiles should abstain from to keep them from offending their Jewish brothers. Everyone agrees with James. The church then chooses two representatives to accompany Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to, real, uh, to, to relay the outcome from Jerusalem, from the council, verbally to the Gentile believers. What happens as a result? The Gentile churches are encouraged. And you have the church made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. What I want to do with you this morning is break down these verses and see how they apply to us. See how they apply to the details of the heart of change. First, let's see that the heart of change first focuses on God's word and does not compromise the truth. The heart of change first focuses on God's word and does not compromise the truth. As we look at verses 12 through 18, one could draw several conclusions from these verses. But I want us to focus on what is being said here. Before we get into what James says, notice verse 12. We notice that the crowd gets silent as a result of Peter's remarks. And now it's time for Paul and Barnabas to make some remarks. However, look at the emphasis from Paul and Barnabas. Their emphasis is on God's initiative, on the mission. They focus in on God's work through them. The main thrust of this is to verify what Peter has just said, showing that God has endorsed their mission to the Gentiles by giving of the signs and wonders. Paul never really enters into debates. We know Paul's a smart guy. He's, he's a great at debating. He never really enters into debate. When he does speak, Paul only reports on what God has done. Notice the focus of verse 12. It's on God. God brought miracles. God brought signs. God verified the message. The heart of change must first have its focus around God, but it also must have its focus on the Word of God. And that's what we see James do. James appeals to God's Word, beginning in verse 13. In verses 13 through 18, we have James quoting from a um, uh, passage of Scripture, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. However, before we get into that, notice what James says. The gist of what he is saying ultimately is that all men must be able to receive salvation apart from the burden of the law and circumcision. And he backs up what Peter has already said. He starts off by saying Simeon, who is Peter, has related and then or relayed to them. And then what does he say? 
God first visited the Gentiles. This doesn't say that God cared for. He looked after them. And then he says to take from them a people. Do you notice that? So God looked after the Gentiles, which is us, by the way. He looked after them and he took from them a people. Which is to make a people his possession. Don't miss what James is saying. God is calling people out from among the Gentiles. He is calling out his chosen people. That is exactly what James is saying. James is saying that God, or James is saying what God is doing with the Gentiles. And it's not any different than what he has done with Abraham and the Jews. He calls a people out that are his people. Not only does he take from them a people, but why does he do this? He does it for his name. Listen, church, God chooses a people not for our glory, not for our fame, but he chooses a people for his glory, for his namesake, so that he would be exalted. Only after this does James launch into this passage from Amos. The heart of change focuses on God. Paul and Barnabas focus on God. James focuses on God and how he calls a people out. And now he's going to focus on the word of God to back up what he says. What James is doing is he's quoting from Amos. She's using scripture to support the truth that God calls the people out from the Jews and from the Gentiles. And he takes this passage from Amos and he applies it to Jesus Christ and to believers. James is making it clear that the purpose of God is to call the Gentiles out. To call them apart from them having to become Jews. There are three promises here that Christ will come. Which is a reference to his first coming. There will be believers who are Jewish. That is what it means to rebuild the tent of David. That's what he's saying there. The true body of Jews, which are believers in Christ, will be rebuilt when he says, and all Gentiles. So the third promise is that there will be a Gentile believers. There will be Gentile believers who are called out by the Lord. Now what's interesting here is James ends with the Lord makes these things known from old. James is simply saying that the inclusion of Gentiles in the gospel is foreknown from eternity. It's not some sort of surprise to God that there are Gentile believers. Now here's the point James is using. He uses scripture to support his argument. James isn't just throwing around random opinions, hoping everything's going to work out. He uses scripture to back up what he's saying. Using scripture to back up what Peter has just said. Salvation is for all people, Jew or Gentile, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Additionally, James is making it clear that the salvation initiates with God and not with man. This is what God has purposed from all eternity. 
This was his plan from all eternity. It's not something that man just dreamt up. Oh, well, we better, we better figure out what we're going to do with these Gentiles. This was God's plan. James uses the word of God to let everyone see God's plan. And the heart of change focuses on God's word. And it never compromises God's word. If someone is compromising the word of God, in particular, as we talked about last week, the gospel, then we do not unify with them. That's not something that we change. In the gospel, we find the essential truths of the sinfulness of all of humanity. We find that no one can save themselves. We find that our need to be born again can only come from God. Listen, there are other truths in God's word that we can never compromise on. We can never compromise on the fact that the Bible is the word of God. We can never compromise on the fact that the scripture is our sole authority for faith and practice. Otherwise, we have no authoritative basis for our faith or anything else because it would be subjective. We can never compromise on the Trinity, that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. We never compromise that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that he died on the cross, that he rose again, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and will one day return in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. We don't compromise on that. We can never compromise on essential doctrines of our faith. It is never right to compromise the truth of God's word. Which is why this first point is vital. If our belief does not line up with God's word, it is us that needs to change. If our belief does not line up with God's word, we don't have the privilege of twisting or manipulating the word of God so that somehow it supports our belief. We don't get to compromise the word of God. The heart of change first goes to the word of God and says this is why change needs to happen because it says something I'm doing needs to be changed. So it focuses first on the word of God. Secondly, the heart of change is done out of love, not out of offense. The heart of change is done out of love, not out of offense. Verses 19 through 29 are very interesting. And I believe they're very relevant to the times in which we live. Look at verse 19. James sums up his argument by basically saying that his judgment is that the Gentiles should not be forced to keep the law of Moses and undergo circumcision. His point is that no one should be troubled or hindered from receiving Christ as Savior by rituals or law. But then in verse 20 and 21, James mentions four things that the Gentiles should abstain from. The question is, why are these things mentioned? And the answer is because they're offensive to the Jews. If we look at, at three of these four things, three of them are not essential doctrines. They're not essential. But they're simply socially situational items that should be considered to, to, avoid, um, ne to avoid needlessly offending the Jews. You know, I spent quite a bit of time uh, looking over these verses 
And to be honest, there are several different views on verse 21 and these four things that are listed. It's my belief, and one that I think the text supports, is that James is saying that the Gentile believers should abstain from these behaviors so that they will not needlessly offend the Jews who need to believe in Christ as their Savior and to not offend the Jews who have recently converted to Christianity and are in the churches. So he's saying, don't do these things so you don't offend non-believing Jews and don't do these things so you don't offend believing Jews because that's going to cause division. Now in verse 29, this list is repeated, though it is in a different order. Now what is interesting is that you read this letter, it's not a demanding letter as we read the letter that they sent. James does not say that if they refuse to obey, then they're going to get kicked out of the church or that they're going to incur some kind of judgment from God, but rather the letter is encouraging. It is written out of love towards the Gentile believers and it encourages the response of love from them. Furthermore, James makes it clear in the letter that these false teachers that came to them, acted apart from the leaders in Jerusalem. And so they were off on their own, teaching their own things rather than teaching God's word. Now what's interesting as we look at this list is that three of these items are related to ceremonial law and the other obviously is related to moral law. What we see is James laying out that they would do well to obey these three Jewish ceremonial laws. And because of the culture that they are surrounded with, one in which sexual immorality is prevalent, prevalent, they should stay away from sexual immorality. Well, let me see if I can quickly break these down for us so that we can understand what James is saying. First, he says, things polluted by idols or sacrificed to idols. This is a reference to meat that had been offered to pagan gods that would then be brought into the marketplace and then they would sell this meat. If a Jew saw a Christian eating this meat, it would be offensive to that Jew. Next, we have both what has been strangled and uh, things that are from blood. This is referencing meat that had not been killed by draining the blood from the animal and it violated Jewish dietary laws. Now the Gentiles are not subject to Jewish dietary laws. So it is important to note that however the council is requesting that they stay away from these practices for one primary reason, so that they would not be an offense to the Jews. Now let's look at the last item that's not in relation to Jewish custom, and that's sexual morality. This is uh, the word, to be honest, has been interpreted uh, various ways. It's the Greek word pornea, which of course is where we get our word pornography. And I believe that the best interpretation of this is actually the easiest one. And the way in which the Gentiles would have understood it and what they would have understood it to mean, which is to tell them to stay away from sex outside of marriage. The question most people struggle with is, why is it mentioned? When you have this list of Jewish laws, why is sexual immorality mentioned? Furthermore, this is a part of God's moral law. Isn't it common knowledge to stay away from sexual immorality? My question would be, is it common knowledge today for Christians to stay away from sexual immorality? The answer, of course, is no. Sexual immorality was very common among the Gentiles. They were probably those who professed faith in Christ that had no clue of God's moral standard. Remember temple prostitution? Um, we talked about that in 1 Corinthians. If we were here, that was, that was something that was going on. They would have a mistress for sexual gratification, which was a common practice for Gentiles. 
Therefore, if they professed faith in Christ and then they kept on with these practices, the unbelieving Jews would never be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ because even believing Jews held to the sanctity of marriage. Remember, this point is at the heart of change. Uh, this, this is what we're talking about, the heart of change. And it's done out of love, not out of offense. And I believe that through these prohibitions that James is giving that we can find some specific applications to us today. Application number one from what James is saying is this. Because we love the lost, we should not do culturally offensive things that would give cause to reject the gospel. I know that's long. But because we love the lost, we should not do culturally offensive things that would give cause to reject the gospel. If you were here through our study uh, through 1 Corinthians you would remember that the Apostle Paul was always sensitive to cultural backgrounds and those that he was trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went to great lengths to try not to do anything that would put up a barrier to the gospel in the life of a lost person. When thinking of cultural sensitivity, I often think of missionaries trying to discern between what is cultural and what is not cultural. There has to be discernment in all of this between those things that are cultural and those things that are basically essential that we cannot compromise on. There are matters that we need to set aside at times in order to reach the loss because they are not biblical imperatives. What happens is we often are uh, an offense to someone because we choose to major in the minors. We choose to hold fast to those things that are not biblical imperatives. And we try to convert people by holding those things up and saying, oh, here's the standard that you have to follow. And we don't understand that we are simply being an offense to someone because we're holding some sort of cultural view as opposed to a biblical view. Let me give you an example that I think would be relative to us in today's society. We see someone with multiple piercings. And we don't like it because we just don't like people that have multiple piercings. And regardless of what we say, sometimes that causes us maybe to look at someone differently. So we approach them and we start off by telling them why we believe it's wrong for them to have multiple piercings. Well, that's an offense to them. You're not going to win them by telling them, hey, let me tell you why I believe it's wrong that you have all these piercings all over your body. Do you think that's going to win that person to Christ? It's offensive. We do the same thing with tattoos. We see somebody that has multiple tattoos and we want to start off by, oh, I don't like that. So I'm going to start off by talking to them on why tattoos are wrong and how that's sinful. Let me go back to ceremonial Levitical law and tell you why. And often we don't even have an understanding of scripture and what is ceremonial law and what isn't ceremonial law and why would it be okay. And, and so then we are offensive to them. Personally, I want the person, guy, girl, whatever, with gauges in their ears and full sleeves on their arm to come into my church. And I want them to know Jesus Christ is their Savior. In fact, I want them to be the greeter at my door to welcome other people in. So I think it's great when someone comes to Christ. 
Here's what I want us to understand. We will always think that our way of doing things is right. But may we be reminded that Scripture, not our experience, is the standard in which everything should be evaluated. It's not your experience. However, there is nothing sacred about how we do things within the boundaries of Scripture. There's nothing sacred about that. Because we love the lost, we should not be culturally offensive. Whether it's how someone dresses, whether it's certain actions that they take, or whatever, as long as we are not stepping over into the realm of sin, we must be willing to be culturally sensitive to people. This is why Paul was able to say, if you remember, I have become all things to all men. What's he say? So that I may by all means save some. That should be our attitude, church. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Because we love the lost, we should not do culturally offensive things that would give cause to reject the gospel. Secondly, second application to this passage that James is, is, uh, has said to us. Because we love other believers, we should not do morally offensive things that could lead them into sin. Because we love other believers, we should not do morally offensive things that could lead them into sin. Paul also dealt with this in 1 Corinthians. If you were here, you would remember um, some of the Corinthian Christians felt it was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. They had that freedom in Christ. It did not violate a moral command to eat the meat, but there are some weaker Christians whose consciences would be violated if they saw a stronger Christian eating that meat. These weaker Christians had come out of pagan idol worship and to eat the meat in front of that weaker Christian would lead them right back into their pagan idol worship. And so out of love for your, their brothers in Christ, Paul says, hey, the stronger Christian should not eat the meat in the presence of the weaker Christian. Don't be flaunting, oh, look, I can eat this meat. Look at how I don't think it's wrong. That's what Paul's saying. That's the gist of that passage of scripture. Now, let me be very clear that this point of application causes a, a ton of confusion today. I have heard this point of application so maligned that, and, and people just don't even understand this point of application. What often happens is it gives way to legalism within inside uh, Christianity, with, even within a church, where someone sets up their own unbiblical standard and they impose that unbiblical standard on a new believer. There are several examples of this, but let me give you one that perhaps you've heard and maybe you've even contributed to. You've probably grown up even with this saying. When you go to church, you wear your Sunday best. You ever hear that? I grew up with that. 
My mom, that's what she taught me. When you go to church, you wear your Sunday best. Problem is, I grew up dirt poor. Okay? We didn't, I mean, we wore our Sunday best, but trust me, it was hand-me-downs and stuff that we found in the dump sometimes. I grew up poor. But that was the same. So sometimes, Christians use this as legalism. They impose it on a young Christian. When you go to church, you wear your Sunday best. You need to dress a certain way. When the Bible puts no such stipulations on our dress. It's not there. I can remember being a young student pastor and being called up to, to pray. And I was dressed like I am now, actually. And I, church called me up to pray and I led in prayer. And I was called into an elders meeting. You didn't wear your suit coat. You called on me to pray. People were upset. I got on stage without a suit coat. And I said, I took my bike. When I was young, I was sometimes, I didn't say the right thing sometimes, so I took my Bible and I said, please show me where how I dress is related to my heart. Show me that in Scripture. And I handed my Bible. And of course, that, that didn't go over real well. <laughs> you got mad at me. And we say, well, if, if, if that new believer is not going to conform to my standard of wearing the right clothes for church, then, they, then, then they're told they need, to, they need to conform because they're causing other believers to stumble. That's the kind of thing we like to say. Well, you're causing someone else to stumble. I'm, I'm taking something that is not biblical and I'm raising it as a standard. And then I'm saying to you that you're causing someone else to stumble because you're not following this unbiblical standard I'm putting on you. And that's a gross misapplication of Scripture. And yet it happens all the time amongst Christians. And it happens within the church constantly. That is not even what it means to cause your brother to stumble. What it means is that you do something that is morally permissible for you to do. But that same thing would be sinful for another Christian to do. Because it violates their conscience. And you do this in their presence. And lead them to join with you in doing it. And therefore you're causing them to sin. That's what it means to cause your brother to stumble. So in other words, I do something that I think, that I believe by scripture is morally permissible, which is a lot of things. And I do this in front of you that violates your conscience. And because it violates your conscience, you, for you to do it would sin. And I encourage you to engage in that activity with me. That's causing your brother to stumble. It is humanly impossible to live a life that would never offend anyone. That's why I can't stand it when I hear people throw that verse around all the time. Don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't call, don't, oh, you ate too much uh, steak. You might cause your brother to stumble. You might cause him to stumble. Oh, you can't eat that candy bar. You might cause your brother to stumble. Oh, you can't dress a certain way. You might cause your brother to stumble. Oh, you can't wear that hat. You might cause your brother to stumble. Oh, you can't get a tattoo. You'll cause your brother to stumble. Oh, don't get an earring. You'll cause your brother to stumble. You don't want to cause your brother. Everything's going to offend someone. So quit misusing scripture. 
In fact, this decree from the council at Jerusalem no doubt offended many of the Jews who were struggling with the Gentiles because they didn't live like they lived. However, that's not the point. The point is that you and I should seek to live in such a way before God that we are always seeking to please Him. And if we know that we are offending another brother, then we should go get that matter resolved as soon as possible. Why? Because we love other believers. We should not do things that are morally offensive that would lead them into sin. Third application is this. Because we love God, we must never do things that are culturally acceptable but are forbidden by His Word. Because we love God, we must never do things that are culturally acceptable but are forbidden by His Word. Folks, can we be very honest here? There are many folks who confess to be Christians but they're only Christian in confession because they're ignorant of the holy standards of God. There are those who confess Christ that have no problem with sex before marriage, have no problem with pornography, have no problem with being a drunkard, have no problem with any number of sins that we could throw out there. It's as if we don't even know what sin is anymore. It's as if God does not have any moral standard anymore. It's as if that he calls his people to, to hold to whatever they feel like holding to. But let me be perfectly clear. God's moral standard does not change. It does not change. It doesn't change over time and it does not change over culture. We cannot say, well, it's okay for that person not to hold to that moral standard. God calls his people to be holy, set apart ones. And as followers of Christ, because we love God, we must refuse to be so influenced by our culture that we violate God's moral standard. And in today's society, especially right now at this time, if you know what I mean, there are a lot of people saying, oh, it's okay to violate God's moral standard in this area because of the culture in which we live. It is never okay to violate God's moral standard as a follower of Jesus Christ. Never. We can't excuse it. We can't condone it. We can't say, oh, well, it's okay. Well, let, me, let me try to find that in the Bible. It's never okay. We must never violate God's moral standard because of culture. We must refuse to be so influenced by our culture that we violate God's standards and participate in what's forbidden. Because we love God, we must never do things that are culturally acceptable but are forbidden by His Word. And this leads us to our final point this morning. The heart of change relies on, the heart of change relies on the, authorita the authoritative guide for all faith and practice, which is the word of God. 
The heart of change relies on the authoritative guide for all faith and practice, which is the word of God. The Jerusalem Council, they appointed two men to accompany Paul and Barnabas back to the church at Antioch. And it says uh, uh, that they were Judas and Silas. And it says of Judas and Silas that they strengthened the brothers with many words. I like that. With many words. Now I know some of you perhaps think that I have too many words. That's why I like that verse. Because they used many words. I like that. It also says that Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let me say, church, that being a pastor, and I would say one of the main points of being a pastor is this, teaching the word. Teaching the word. The apostles appointed the deacons so they could do what? Be dedicated to the word. That's why they appointed them. And for whatever reason, we live in a time where the teaching of the word has become secondary. There are churches that are starving for the word of God. They're starving for it. You know, when I was on my last mission trip to Haiti, we sat down with some of the translators there, and for hours, all they did was sit there and ask me theological and doctrinal questions. One right after the other. They're so hungry for the Word. And there's churches that are in the same boat. Because instead of teaching the word, the pastor is expected to do everything else but teach the word. And the word has fallen to the bottom of the list of priorities. The word of God has to be the most important thing that the pastor does. You say, well, why? Why is this the most important thing? Because this is the authoritative guide for all of life. That's why this is most important. You say, well, shouldn't he be doing this and this and this and this and this? Maybe. This is what's most important. This comes before anything else. So what are you saying? I can tell you this. I don't do anything until my sermon's done. So if something doesn't get done and you don't like it, it's because my sermon wasn't done. Because this is most important. You know why? Because this is what changes your life. This has a power to change your heart. This has a power to change your life. There was a recent poll that Lifeway and Ligonier put out. You can see the results at thestateoftheology.com. And it shows this very thing that the average evangelical Christian does not know what the Bible says or what they really believe. For example, 46% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 46% of evangelical Christians believe that. 36% believe that by the good deeds that they do, they partly contribute to earning their place in heaven. 
Only 52% of self-identified evangelicals who attend church once or twice per month believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong. 52%. Only 48% of self-identified evangelicals who attend church once or twice a month strongly agree that abortion is a sin. Only 48% strongly agree that abortion is a sin. Church, the stats are fascinating. They show us the typical Christian, the typical evangelical Christian, which would be a church like ours, does not even know what the Bible says or even understands the Bible. Church, we don't have, we, we like to get in this idea that especially now that we're dealing with a political problem. We don't have a political problem. We have a biblical illiteracy problem. We don't even understand what God's word says. We don't even know what it says is right and wrong. No wonder that sin is so rampant in our world because Christians don't even know what sin is. The church is corrupt. We're corrupt with false teachers like the Judaizers. That we looked at last week as we see in verse 24, the false teachers troubled the believers, leading them astray, especially when the shepherd is not guarding the flock. In fact, Paul tells the pastors in Ephesus later that from among their own ranks, men would arise. And what are these men going to do? Paul says that they're going to speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Church, if someone comes proclaiming to do this or to do that or to change this or to change that, and if they come saying, I have a word from the Lord, God spoke to me. You ever hear that? You ever hear somebody stand up and say, well, I heard God tell me this. You better run the minute they say that. You better run because this is his word. This is his word. He doesn't need to reveal to you something that's not in here. The minute they stand up and say, I heard God say to me. Or how about this one? This is what this means to me. No! There's one meaning. There may be many applications. One meaning. I don't care what it means to you. I care what it means. It's not what it means to you. God's word is what matters most. And if somebody comes saying, Oh, you need to change this. You need to do that. You need to do this. You need to do that. And God's word is not the source. Get away. Get away. Because it's our only guide to faith and practice. That's what we say in our Baptist faith and message. That this is the only guide to faith and practice. And we must know God's word. If this is our guide, you have to know it. You have to grow in it. You have to grow in the knowledge of God's word to combat false teachers that desire to lead you astray. Church, let me be clear this morning. Satan will mix truth with error. He does it all the time in order to deceive believers. He gets Christians to compromise over key doctrines of of faith where they should not compromise. And he gets us to divide over issues that are the most mundane things that that, that we should never divide over. But we divide over anyway. Because we won't concede out of love. Satan's a smart dude. 
We need to know God's word. We need wisdom. We need discernment. We need to know the essential truths of the, of the word of God. We need to know areas where we should never concede. And we have to know areas where it's okay to compromise out of love for others. And here's what I want to ask you this morning. Do you know God's word enough that you have a heart of change? Do you know God's word enough that you have a heart of change? In other words, do you know it well enough to know when it is okay to compromise? Do you know it well enough to say it's okay to compromise in this area? Are you running around insisting that people follow your unbiblical rule book? Do you know it well enough to know where it's okay to compromise? To know what's important and what's not important? Are you avoiding culturally offensive things as not to give the lost a reason to reject the gospel? Are you cautious of things that would be offensive so as not to lead other believers into sin? Are you keeping away from those things which God expressly forbids in his word? Are you relying on God's word this morning? And perhaps you'd examine your life this morning and you say, that's not me. I don't, I don't even know. Then the response is repent and get into God's word and to know it. And to know where it's okay to compromise and where it's not. And the response is if you're holding some sort of unbiblical standard for people to follow, the response is this. And then I'll make it real easy for you. Okay? Here's your response. Stop it. There. Just stop. It's easy. Just say that's not biblical, so I'm going to stop. And you say, well, I don't know whether it's biblical or not. Then get into God's word. If you, if you need help figuring out, come talk to me. I'll talk to you about it. Lastly, I'd ask you this. Do you even know? Do you even know the standard? Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, I, I don't even know. I don't even know Christ as Savior. I, mean, I don't even know what you're talking about up there. I'd be glad to talk with you this morning. Here in a minute, we're going to sing a song. And if you want to respond, maybe through prayer, maybe the Lord's spoken to you in a, in a way that your heart has, has been moved and your conscience has been moved and the Holy Spirit has placed that in you, then I want to just encourage you to respond this morning, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through you need somebody to pray with you, I'd be glad to do that. You can do it in your pew. You don't have to come forward. Maybe this morning you feel convicted that you don't know Christ as your Savior. I'd love to have a conversation with you this morning. I'm just standing right down front. We're going to sing a song. I want to encourage you to come this morning. Let's close this time with prayer.